You're listening to EduRevolution, a podcast that inspires educators to make meaningful change. My name is Michael R. McCormick, and I'm a school district superintendent best known as a technology enthusiast who is dedicated to increasing opportunity and access for each student. I'm sitting down with the movers and shakers who are making waves in the education space through research, practice, and technology integration. Buckle up and be inspired to make changes in your school or district and join the Edu Revolution movement. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Well, hello, this is your host, Michael McCormick, for the Edu Revolution podcast, and I am super excited for today's guest. She is somebody who I consider a dear friend and an amazing colleague. We've had the chance to interact with each other over the last many years. And uh, so I I give to you Pam Gildersleeve Hernandez. Pam, welcome to today's show. Thank you, Mike. You know it's a pleasure to be on the show and that every time we get the opportunity to visit, I just enjoy myself so much and learn so much from you. Well, thank you, Pam. I appreciate that. So I'll, I'll readily admit I was lurking on your LinkedIn page earlier and uh, saw that you've been a teacher, uh, an assistant principal, a principal, a superintendent. You've also been involved with the Association of California School Administrators for many years. I was going to ask you, I know you've been kind of a central coast person for for a lot of your life, but I also saw in there that you're uh, fluent in German and Spanish and English, or at least have you know, some, some, uh, some ability in those three languages. And so kind of talk about your experience as I think, is it fair to say a second language learner? That is actually very fair to say, and I'll throw in my cue leadership as well. So I um, have served as the executive director of Q and also served as the chair of the administrator learning network while I served as an administrator. Um, I got started with Q while I was overseeing the special education programs, moderate to severe programs for the San Luis Obispo County Office of Education. Wonderful. And so in a pre-conversation, you kind of talked about spending time as a young person between the United States and Germany. I'm fascinated by this. So tell, tell the listeners a little bit about that experience. Yes, I was born in Germany, as were my brother and my sister. And my dad served in the military in the U.S. Army, where he met my mom. And we ended up moving back and forth every two years. So I was, I want to say, six weeks old when we came to the United States. And things that I think are interesting are that even though I was born overseas, I was born an American citizen because my dad was an American citizen. So first thing he did uh, after I was born is he raced on down to the U.S. consulate and made sure that we had uh, my birth certificate be issued through them and have my citizenship papers and all those kinds of things. That was really, really important um, back in the day. And, you know, we have conversations now about politics and whether somebody's a citizen or not. So there are interesting pathways along the way there. Um, Growing up, though, back and forth every two years. So I attended preschool in the States and in Germany. I attended kindergarten in the States and in Germany. Elementary school in the States and in Germany. And it's fascinating when you're a kid, you really spend a lot of time 
um, gaining your fluency in the language that you spend most of your day in. So while we lived in Germany, I would find my German skills just, you know, developing really fantastically. And then we would move back to the States and I would find that I would start to lose my German skills and my English skills would develop. And at home, I had a parent that spoke English and a parent that spoke German to me, which is a story unto itself, but not an uncommon story in many of the households of our students. And as you and I spoke about earlier, this has informed the way that I have worked with our English language learners, because so often we get boxed curriculums. And then we take a look at test data and we see that mm, those box curriculums are allowing us to check that box, that compliance box. But they're not really impacting how students are learning and, and the command they're getting of the language. That's happening out on the playground. And we also see that when we don't create the opportunities for kids to use the language naturally and authentically, right, that those skills aren't going to develop. Um, so big deal to have that experience of growing up in between multiple cultures, between multiple languages, the food, the money, the vocabulary you use, the sentence structures that you use and how they translate back and forth between countries. Yeah, I love that. You know, we've uh, it, you're making me think about our dual language immersion programs. And uh, you may have had some of those when you're in San Antonio. We have some in my school district. And we always say, you know, to be biliterate, bicultural is a cognitive advantage uh, for our students, right? And, um, you know, there's so many attributes and good things that are, you know, certainly a plus one when you can operate and, and think and express yourself in multiple languages. And did you, do you find yourself even as adult, maybe having some dreams where everybody's speaking German or everybody's speaking English? I mean, tell me about that. Cause you know, I had Spanish teachers who would say, look, you, you know, you've really mastered a language when you begin dreaming in that language. Any experiences like that? Oh, gosh, too many experiences like that. Um, and also a little bit in Spanish, because I did study in Costa Rica. I studied Spanish in school and did about as well in you know my high school Spanish classes as our students do, you know, in the box curriculums I just mentioned a moment ago. Um, but two really interesting stories along those lines. When I was a sophomore in high school, in my Spanish two class, there was another girl in the class who had a story not unlike mine. She was also fluent in German. And our teacher called us both to the front of the classroom, and our assignment was to have a conversation in Spanish. We started out and were stumbling through, you know, our, our very Spanish to vocabulary, when all of a sudden, boy, that conversation just started getting easier, and it felt like it was flowing. And I remember this moment of looking from her face, Robin's face, over to the class, and everybody was staring at us with mouths open and our teacher looking completely and utterly confused. And what had happened is we had both dropped into German. <laughs> that is a and great story. Happens, right? So the mind, right? We, we store our language um, in the, basically that same file cabinet, and that was where we were comfortable. Now, here's another interesting story. So, you know, I hit that middle-aged thing, right? And I joke around that I got myself a brand new hip last year. 
But as I was, um, they were getting ready to put me under, uh, the gentleman had said, oh, he studied in Berlin and speaks German and Spanish. I was like, oh, that's interesting, right? I was born in Germany. And he started speaking to me in German. And my blood pressure immediately went down. My body just relaxed. And I don't think it was just the drugs. <laughs> you knew you were in good hands, right? You knew you were in good hands. My doctor afterwards, he said that they have found that um, that happens frequently because he speaks Spanish as well, that when he drops into the patient's native language, they can watch the physiological effects on the patient. And, you know, that's not a research study by any means, but it was absolutely fascinating to me how quickly my mind connected and how quickly my body relaxed into the language. That's a great story. And, you know, I want to key in. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to channel Jim Cummings, who was a, a person back when I was teaching in an elementary school that was, you know, primarily filled with second language learners. And he talked about in his research, you know, the power of that kind of playground, playground language where, you know, that's, that's where you learn to interact and become fluent in that playground language. But then, you know, there's a difference when you start moving into the academic language. Yes. And um, so I, I kind of keyed in on that when you said, you know, interacting with, you know, your classmates out in on the schoolyard. And um, that's where you build your fluency. But then when you transition into some of those more difficult, maybe vocabulary words uh, that are more challenging to translate that's that's where the real work has to happen to get that true you know bilingual biliterate level of vocabulary and i think often we underestimate the challenges and um, we don't always give our students a fair shake because again we know talent is everywhere opportunity is not and and sometimes uh, the language expression is not a true measurement of how uh, capable our students can be. It may be they, they have all the cognitive talent in the world. They just are having difficulty expressing themselves in a second uh, language. Absolutely. And, you know, we get into talking about Bix and Kelps yeah. in there as well. And when we add the high cognitive demand of academic language to our students, without having first developed fix, and we know this through the research, right, the, the basic language skills that we need to have, where the brain power is focusing so strongly on grabbing that academic vocabulary, right, but trying to get through the fluency as well, right, what are my prepositions and my adverbs and that there's everyday vocabulary. But if we can get fluency in that everyday vocabulary so students aren't having to translate the other nuances of the sentence structure, that allows them then to have the bandwidth to accept the academic vocabulary and to build on that. And when I was in school in, in Germany and we, gosh, it was fifth grade, we moved back there and in fifth grade, they students are split up into four different levels of schooling. We're in the Sonderschule, which would be the special education pathway, the Grundschule, which is, uh, goes through the ninth grade and sets you up for blue collar work, the Realschule, which sets you up to become, you know, like an administrative assistant type of profession along those lines. Or you can go to the gymnasium, which would send you off to the university. 
And while we were there, they had me in a remedial program in the Grundschule, and I would take, you know, the equivalent of German as a second language classes, and uh, the predominant migrant group were students from Turkey. And so interesting on many levels there, you know, as, you know, traveling and attending schools in different countries can be, but it was by being able to develop the bits, right, those foundational basic language skills on the playground that I was able to then jump into, you know, some of the more academic vocabulary. And then coming to the United States, you know, to your point, Mike, right, being in a remedial program, um, and now I'm, you know, enrolled in a doctoral program. Isn't we that something? We really underestimate the intellect of our students. Yeah, man. How about that? A couple of uh, seasoned educators going way back to Jim Cummings and Bix and Kalp. That <laughs> I guess that's the kind of stuff that stays with you, right? Yeah. Well, you and I kind of got connected. Um, there was a movement within the Obama administration uh, mm -hmm. where they were asking superintendents to sign on to the Future Ready Pledge. Yeah. And... Um, we did that in my school district, and you probably did that in, in yours at the time, but mm -hmm. you got to have quite the amazing experience. I think through that Future Ready Schools program, you were invited to the U.S. Department of Education and got to sit down with the then Secretary of Education, John B. King. I'm fascinated to hear about this experience. Yeah, that was pretty extraordinary. Um, so Future Ready launched at the exact same time that my superintendency launched. And when I saw the structure of the way it was set up, I went, oh, my goodness, there it is. There's the answer. Um, and I was a small school superintendent, which means in terms of, you know, cabinet resources and staff resources, uh, you end up wearing a lot more hats than in a larger school district. And the way Future Ready is set up, it allowed me to work with our staff in a very structured way, interestingly, to innovate and iterate on what was already in place. Um, as part of that, I um, had the opportunity to meet Tom Murray, a big fan, love that we've become friends over the years. And I was also invited down to a Future Ready event that July down at the Orange County office of education. Um, and that's where, you know, I met with Dr. David Edelman at that time, who was the economic and technology advisor to President Obama. And I'm not quite sure how all the pieces fell into place in the background. He and I exchanged some emails about um, the internet access that the students at the Army base that served the district I was leading, San Antonio. And Tom and I, of course, hit it off very well. But Oh, but a little over a year later, I received an email that said, hey, would you be interested in speaking with the uh, U.S. Secretary of Education, Dr. John B. King? You know, if so, you'll fill this out. And I was like, is this for real? Yeah. Right. That's one of those career defining moments. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. Um, ultimately, uh, you know, you know, there's that part, you know, and it's fun to talk about imposter syndrome. We're going to talk about the book Think Again a little bit later as well and the strengths of imposter syndrome. Um, but I was selected as one of 12 superintendents from across the United States to attend a briefing with Dr. King. And I was the only superintendent of a small school district that was there. And it was very empowering. Uh, he is a, has a very strong presence and a very warm and welcoming presence 
at the exact same time. Yeah, I've I've had the pleasure of meeting with him on a couple of occasions, mm-hmm. and um, I would agree completely. Just somebody who's calm and welcoming and has an incredible personal story about the triumph of a student against many, many odds. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it's, he allows you to connect with him on a very human level. And um, I stay in touch with him. He's now leading uh, EdTrust uh, as a nonprofit uh, equity group out of Washington, D.C., and continues to do some amazing work. And I would agree, you know, meeting Tom Murray, um, how can you not be a fan of Tom? And, and I, you know, Tom is one of those guys uh, representing the Future Ready Framework with the gears. When I, when I met him and was introduced to the Future Ready Framework, I, I think I literally said, and I've said this to other people too, but I, I think I literally said to Tom, where, where have you been all my life? I've been waiting for you uh, because like uh, in your school system and my school system, we had a lot of initiatives going, but no real framework that kind of made sense and tied it all together. And um, for me, that's what the Future Ready framework did and continues to this day to do for our school system. There's a few key frameworks that I, I really lean on, and Future Ready is absolutely one of those. Another one is the Portrait of a Graduate, which I think is so powerful and so unifying. And, and those two frameworks really give people within the system and the stakeholders, uh, the, the families, the students, the local community members, uh, not only, you know, lots of words to describe the work we're doing, but I think more importantly, they give people a visual of the work that's being done. And I think anytime we can kind of, you know, give somebody a visual framework, it helps them make the connections and see how all these initiatives uh, are really working together to promote increased student achievement and make sure the system is supporting that. Um, so that that was, I bet that was just a, a fantastic, you know, anytime you get to go to Washington, D.C., uh, at least for me, I feel like that's a really powerful experience. I couldn't agree more. It, it's pretty amazing. You know, I haven't been since, um, you know, with our new administration has come in or since COVID uh, took place and curious to what it would be like now, but it's quite something. Um, you know, D.C. and even Philadelphia, but when you get to spend time in these places that uh, are part of the founding of our country, um, even with the controversies that surround the history of of how our country started up, there's something to be said for being in those spaces and the minds that uh, set into place the documents and the systems that have gotten us to where we are now on our journey as a country. Yeah, so true. I, I couldn't agree more. So we, you know, we met, we we kind of uh, did some things with the Future Ready, and somewhere not too long after that, it was probably about 2018, you and I and others uh, got started on this Voxer group mm-hmm. uh, and started the hashtag Edgy Revolution Voxer group, where we started bouncing ideas around. And, and of course, that was the inspiration for the Edge of Revolution podcast, and you were one of the founding members that was involved in the uh, Voxer group. 
And we started talking a lot about, you know, the kind of the tension in the system I described between compliance and innovation and how could we really move this thing forward? You know, in so many ways, our system is still based on the Committee of Ten back in 1892, led by Horace Mann. And um, you recently found an article uh, that talks about that a little bit. You want to share some some thoughts on that article, Pam? Yeah, I would love to because the history of our education system is fascinating. And we talk so often about how it was founded during the Industrial Revolution and there were, was a component of it, you know, that was definitely designed to stand up a, a labor force, right? Some, you know, labor force that would be compliant and, you know, would put it clock in, right? Where so minutes mattered in the compliance culture, whereas we know now that seat time versus learning time are two very different things. But the education system in the United States really has a longer history than that with a single schoolhouse and going back into the Boston Latin School, you know, which opened up in 1635. And, you know, there are a lot of schools that originally was, you know, reading, writing, grammar rules and studying the Bible, right? That's what they wanted to have kids learn how to do is uh, read the Bible and then instruct them in the basics of, of faith. And along the way, um, Horace Mann comes to the United States and he has been studying different education systems and he's traveling around the world and he connects with the Committee of Ten uh, shortly after the U.S. Department of Education is realized for the first time. And the system that he recommends was the Prussian model. We thought that would be very beneficial for America's schools. Now, there's an article in Medium written by Benjamin Bogle and Benjamin Bogle writes that um, Horace Mann even admitted that the intent of the Prussian model of schooling at that time was evil. Because the intent of the public education system there was really designed to crush the spirit of the individual. And as Bogle writes, to ensure loyalty to the leader. When yeah. you think about it, that's pretty scary. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a way of indoctrinating compliant citizens. Yes, and um, you know that our education system still has its roots that can be traced back to that. Like you say, I, I think you said it just right. It's a pretty scary, you know, pretty pretty scary thing that we're involved in. And then I know there was some great authors out of. Uh, Harvard University that wrote a book uh, several years ago, but for a lot of uh, students in doctoral programs in the education sector, they read this book and it's called Tinkering Towards Utopia by Tyak and Cuban. And um, it basically lays out the idea that, you know, we've been trying to transform public education for the last 50 years, but there's this pressure called the grammar of schooling that wants to retain that kind of original organization and spirit that goes all the way back to the Committee of Ten. And, um, you know, education is a very complex system that has lots of structures and lots of dynamics in it, lots of different layers and they basically say that, you know, with all the energy and effort, we've only been able to make slight improvements or tinker along the way. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that we're still facing that, you know, today. And one of the things that, you know, candidly, I was I was pretty excited about with the the global pandemic, not the tragedy of you know all the the people that lost their lives as a result of the coronavirus, but that this created an opportunity for us in schools. You know, so many of the tenets of the future ready framework around you know, increasing devices and infrastructure and the hardware of technology, but also training teachers and students and families to use some of the software advancements uh, for teaching and learning in terms of engagement uh, in, you know, a virtual environment. We really got a chance to do that because we had no other choice that that's what we were forced into. You know, we were forced into this distance learning model uh, to, to really protect public safety. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, by that going on for a period of time, my, the biggest thing that I'm thinking about now is how do we protect those innovations and advancements that we, our systems gained during the pandemic and not revert back to, you know, our, our old mental models around teaching and learning. So do you, do you have some thoughts on that, Pam? Oh, I have thoughts on that. <laughs> right on. Well, shoot. Absolutely. Right. So just to go back to the future ready model to, to ground us in this conversation again, when you take a look at the gears right in the center, in the circle is, is uh, student learning right? And making sure that we have those personalized pathways for student learning because technology, when used correctly, can enhance and accelerate student learning, right? It shouldn't be replacing the teacher. I think we've had all those conversations now, but um, it can change the way we deliver instruction. It can change the pacing. Um, Even when we take a look at articles now, we can zoom in and make the text bigger. Uh, You can read the article or you'll get an option that says, listen to the article here, right? Universal design for learning is embedded in our system. um, Once you get out of school, all over the place. Now, during the pandemic, I read a fascinating article in McKenzie that talked about structural breaks in society. I think it dates back to 2016, if I'm not mistaken. But a structural break in society is when something happens all of a sudden and it's so big, right, that it shifts the way we are doing our everyday business. And that structural break is also an opportunity for really deep innovation. And that's what we experienced this past year. Now, interestingly, though, is while we have this extraordinary opportunity and we captured part of it a year ago at this time in the spring where folks were very innovative and shifted really, really quickly, research also shows that the longer that break lasts, the less likely the innovations are to take hold. Because psychologically, we start to yearn for the safety of what we knew before. Yeah, I couldn't, you know, it's interesting you say it that way, because I was thinking the longer that we stay in it, the more chance we have to, you know, not revert back. But I think what you're talking about, you know, makes a lot of sense that, um, you know, we all have this fantasy about 
what we're missing or we've almost had to like recondition ourselves, I guess, in a way to say that, uh, you know, I guess I'm thinking about this with respect to like hybrid, uh, getting kids, you know, everybody wanted to get kids back to school, but once kids got back to school and we discovered we were spending, you know, 30 to 30 minutes to 45 minutes a day taking temperatures for kids and doing hand washing and all these other things. And there was very few students in the class at the same time. You know, we kind of realized that, well, this isn't what we had in mind. Yes. So my best friend's son, Diego, he he had the choice. She said, you know, do you want to go back to school or not? And he was a student who in the traditional pathway of school was not successful. And in hybrid learning has become, or actually not in hybrid learning, a distance learning became an A and a B student. And he said, gosh, you know, I'm staying home. I'll, I'll do the hybrid thing. And so he has that synchronous instruction where the teacher's teaching the class and he's at home. And so his mom asked him, she's, you know, how did it go? And he's like, oh, thank God I'm here at home. Because do you know how many times they get in trouble in class? And all day long, all the teacher says is put your hands in your pocket, make sure that you're at least elbows apart so that you have three feet. And he said, because I don't have to get in trouble all day. I have freedom at home. I actually get to learn. I think that's really good. And one of my one of my colleagues who I have a tremendous amount of respect for, uh, Dr. Chris Emden, who wrote the mm-hmm. book uh, for white folks who teach and the rest of y'all too, said, you know, one of the things that uh, this COVID experience has provided for our students is that they no longer have to go to a place that suppresses them, uh, you mm-hmm. know, kind of going back to that Prussian model. I mean, imagine if you're in a school where this is what creates anxiety for you as a student uh, for all sorts of reasons. You know, we, we know that students can be brutal on any little amount of difference that a person has, whether it's a difference in physical appearance, a difference in their, you know, the way they act socially. And that was completely removed. So I think for a lot of our students, uh, you know, there, there's been a significant benefit. They haven't had to deal with the anxiety associated with coming into our schools that may not necessarily be, you know, as welcoming as we would like them to be. And uh, it was just fascinating for me to hear that perspective. And, and in many ways, I, I couldn't agree more. And it just, it really highlights for us the work that we have yet to do in our schools to make sure they're culturally affirming places for our students and our families, uh, and to make sure that they are welcoming, truly welcoming for all of our students. So great, great points. Any other points you wanted to make on that uh, before we move on? Mike, you know, yes, it's the, our, our schools are a microcosm of our communities. And so that feeling of you know, somebody that can just be so cruel, you know, a student that can be so cruel or bullying in the classroom, that plays out in the workplace, that plays out in our other communities, and so does the love and the inspiration and the investments that we make in other people. That's part of the human condition. And it's how, the question then is, you know, how do we really shift and this is my wish and my desire, the values of society. So rather than focusing on the negative or tearing down, how do we become strengths-based? 
as a society? How do we invest in each other's success versus thinking that there always has to be a winner and a loser, right? And, you know, talk about utopian, right? Because, you know, if you run a race, you're going to have first place and you're going to have last place. But there is also finishing the race, right? If, if winning is finishing the race, what if we set things up so that everybody can finish and we don't try to tear people down along the way? I love that. And I think that's one of the central themes for the Edge of Revolution movement is that, you know, this idea of, you know, love, empathy, and grace for all of our students and giving students voice and choice and making them co-creators in their futures rather than kind of the old system was designed for, you know, workers of the industrial revolution and factory workers. We know that that is not going to set our students up for success in their future. And so we're really trying to think of ways where we can focus on communication, collaboration, creativity, critical thinking, give kids those, what some people would call soft skills. I think those are actually the real skills that our students are going to need uh, to make them successful in their uh, post-secondary aspirations, whether that's college or university, and then ultimately in the workforce. I mean, we, we constantly hear from our business partners in the communities, look, we want people who can work on teams, come mm -hmm. up with creative solutions uh, to challenges that are before them, because I, I heard it said once that, you know, nobody's got a job for you, but everybody's got a problem to solve. Yeah. And if we can set our, st our students up in classrooms, that have an environment where students can learn to work together collaboratively, where they can appreciate each other's strengths. Everybody brings something unique that is uniquely theirs uh, to the solution and have this kind of, uh, you know, culture where we acknowledge different perspectives in trying to solve problems. I think that diversity of thought is so powerful and uh, we actually get better solutions from that. And that's going to transition into uh, kind of a new social platform that's out there called Clubhouse, where you and I have had a, a recent interaction, you and a good friend of ours, Jerry Amanderas, who's the superintendent of Santa Ana Unified, are hosting a book club on Clubhouse. So, Talk about that experience a little bit. Well, that is all kinds of fun. So I started reading the book, Think Again, and shared it out on Twitter. And I have to remember if Jerry had already picked it up or said he was going to pick it up, but we started having this conversation. And then, um, oh boy, I should have taken a look at uh, my Twitter handle or, you know, Twitter feed before this, Jose, he used to be the president of Calsa, jumped in there also. And he's like, Hey, this sounds like a great book chat, right? Our Twitter chat. And so uh, Jerry and I exchanged some texts and said, Hey, what, you know, let's do this, right? Let's jump on clubhouse and create a series of book chats and invite other people to join us. So we did. And, you know, I have a sister circle, uh, which is uh, born of the COVID experience, one of the silver linings of, of, you know, this challenging past year. And I said, hey, sisters, um, I could use some help setting up the parameters for this. And Jessica Gomez helped design the, the piece, the graphic that we're using that outlines the dates and the chapters. But this book, Think Again by Adam Grant. 
pulls a lot of the answers to the concern we brought up earlier is that as we have the structural break in society and it continues to go on um, and people long for what feels safe and comfortable from what was before, how do we create the conditions to think again? How do we unlearn and how do we help society and school boards and education leaders and parents and communities unlearn the past couple of centuries of this compliance-based system and start designing student-centered, learning-centered systems instead. Yeah, that's fantastic. I had I had the good fortune of being in on the inaugural clubhouse uh, well, book we, study we with you. you, Mike, because you know if we need if we want innovative thinking and we want an education leader that can help move the needle. You know, we're reaching out to you. Yeah, well, I appreciate it. I, I was great. And there was so many wonderful people in there. And so if you're on Clubhouse, we encourage you to join this this book study. You can go in there and um, just follow Pam or Jerry, uh, and you'll get plugged right into this thing. And it is a wonderful book. I got it, and I've started reading through it. And uh, earlier you mentioned the imposter syndrome, and that's one of the things that Adam Grant spends a little time writing about. Give us a little bit more of that. I loved his section on the imposter syndrome because we've all been in that space before where we've shown up somewhere and felt like, oh my gosh, how did I get here, right? Why Why am I in this room? And what he offers is that that is actually a strength. Because the more expert we become in something, the less likely we are to listen to the questions, the pushback, other opinions, other facts, right? Because it's our, our, what we know is always based on the information that we have at this point in time. But the imposter syndrome means we show up open-minded, asking questions, looking for more information so that we're listening with empathy, we're listening to look for understanding, we're we're listening to come to consensus. And that imposter syndrome feeling is actually a great strength in the room. Yeah, I think you said it very well. And so again, I'll I'll put a, a, a little commercial out there. If you want more information about the book, Adam Grant, Think Again, uh, tap into the clubhouse book study that we're doing. And now you mentioned sister circle and I I'm really, I've been following you all on social media platforms and, um, I just love seeing what's going on. It's really a network of women who are there to support and encourage one another. But, uh, I want to hear from you. And then there, we also have another uh, colleague that I wanted to chat about too, and that's uh, Dr. Saba Quidway. Mm. But um, give us the inspiration for the Sister Circle. So last May, AXA, the Association of California School Administrators, had the Sisterhood Symposium. And that's the, the brainchild of Marguerite, uh, who used to uh, oversee, I believe it was their equity department. And then as she moved into an assistant superintendent role, Adam I, Mac took that over uh, at quite an extraordinary time last spring. And so there are, oh gosh, 
hundreds, a hundred women, I don't know, that showed up on the Saturday morning. Um, it's all, you know, last year's foggy, right? The whole year is foggy. <laughs> right, um, right. Up and, um, you know, I think most of us showed up with, as we all did in, you know, April and May of last year, you know, didn't brush our teeth, hadn't combed our hair, you know, in our pajamas, <laughs> but hey, we, we showed up <laughs> to be with some sisters and let's get some motivation and have each other's back. Well, as I was looking, you know, through who else is here, I saw so many women that I admire and respect. Um, but I also thought, what if I could connect some of these amazing women? And what if, while we are stuck, you know, in quarantine, and at that time, oh, you know, two weeks, four weeks, six weeks, you know, what if these folks, I can be tapping into their, their minds and their brains. And so I sent individual texts to Zandra Galvan. She's the superintendent of Greenfield Union School District. And we also went to high school together. Um, superintendent Maria uh, Poulin from the Whittier Union School District and Rosa Perez Isaiah. She is the ultimate champion of social justice and equity. Uh, Veronica Godinez, I know her through Q and as a board member at Q and Linmara Colin, she wrote the book Empowering Our Girls and uh, works in Virginia. Um, so just amazing. And Jessica Gomez, of course, who is in Colton, uh, who I know through Q and providing professional learning and being very innovative. Um, so I sent them individual texts and just said, hey, what do you think about having a sister circle? Super, And we we just presented a little while ago. We we're presenting across the, the country now, just lighting uh, fires under sister circles across the United States. Um, you know, what do, what do you think? It'd be super chill and the idea is to help, you know, motivate each other, you know, as we go through this experience that we we have coming up ahead of us. Well, fast forward almost a year later, next month, we'll have our one-year anniversary as a sister circle. And, you know, we've branded our group um, because we are getting so much attention. Um, and what we are doing is really investing in each other's success and lifting each other up. And we do it through texts and we uh, focus on our accomplishments. And, you know, we've had some big challenges throughout this year, uh, personal and professional. And we have a shared folder of resources. So if somebody, you know, one of our sister says, hey, in my district, we need a letter on, right, you know, COVID vaccinations. Somebody else will be, oh, my district already put that out. You know, I'll drop it in the shared folder. And then another person's district can iterate on that. Um, hey, we're going back to school. I need a presentation. We're having virtual back to school night. And we just drop in resources and share, share, and share. Um, what, and a, what, a, what a fantastic story. You know, that is, and, yes. and man, I, I just, I wish you guys so much continued success. Funny that I said guys there, but, uh, you know, I, I wish you so much success because I, I think this is something that is really needed. I remember attending for the association of California school administrators, a women's breakfast, mm -hmm. and they were talking about some of the statistics, you know, the number of women and percentage of women in leadership and public education. And, um, you know, it's pretty startling, the mm -hmm. lack of the number of women who are in higher positions in education, considering that, you know, so much of the teacher level workforce is female dominated. Mm -hmm. And um, I was I was just blown away by by seeing the research on that. And it just it to me, it demonstrates a tremendous need or a support system 
and a network that empowers women in leadership. And so I, I just have the utmost respect for what you all are doing. And I, and so many of those names that you mentioned, I've been, you know, just grateful to come into contact with, with some of them and share their experiences. And uh, I know that they're amazing system leaders. And so this is uh, certainly a wonderful, wonderful thing that you're doing. And it sounds like you were one of the inaugural members of the group and has, has really kind of provided that leadership. I'm sure it's a shared leadership, but provided mm-hmm. that leadership to um, forward the ideals and, like you said, support and empower women in leadership. And, you know, Mike, what we find and what research bears out about women in leadership, you know, as compared to men, men have long, you know, for decades, if not centuries, right, relied on each other. And they might not have all the qualifications for a job, but they'll apply anyways, being confident in the fact that they have a network, right, that, you know, they can, you know, there's the uh, Amy Cuddy, fake it till you make it. But men have always known that there's a network out there that they can rely on, Um Hey, if you need something, I've got your back. I can get you what you need. Whereas, you know, women have had these traditional roles of, um, you know, tr- not being able to have the same access to the workforce. And then once entering the workforce, continuing to have to maintain all these other duties, right? Where, you know, even, you know, I look at some of the events you and I have gone to, you know, where men go out on the golf course, right? And, you know, are networking and women might have their kids at the conference, right? And aren't getting to do that because they're making sure they're still taking care of their family while they're working at the same time. And so what we are coming to realize as a gender and starting to do is that we need to work with our male colleagues to do the same thing, right? Is to, you know, don't wait until you're overqualified because as women, we do, we wait until we're overqualified before we apply. But apply and get into positions and make sure you have that network that you can then lean on for your success as we invest in each other. Yeah, so, so true. And and I often think about that, you know, and I, I gosh, I, I've got so many thoughts uh, around this, but I just, I couldn't agree more. I, I think women mm-hmm. are many times, you know, being moms and, and being spouses and, you know, living the professional life. And that's a lot to, to balance out. And, um, so I think to have that support and have that encouragement and, and find those ways to, you know, have that work-life balance where it's possible to accomplish everything that you want to do professionally. Mm -hmm. And because we, we need that diversity of thought again, that different perspective, um, you know, we, we could all do with some warmth and some love and some grace and some empathy. And I think that's a voice and a perspective that brought to the workplace is so powerful, um, especially in terms of collaboration and decision-making. And as mentioned earlier, I think that's, that's what ultimately leads to much better decisions. So kudos to you. And if you're interested, you're listening along, I, I would definitely encourage you to follow the hashtag sister circle on your social media platforms. I've, I've seen your work on Twitter and on Instagram and 
some of the things that y'all are doing is, is amazing. Not only that, providing that professional network and support, but also just some of the recognition and celebration of the accomplishments. Uh, I have certainly enjoyed watching this develop. Uh, it's so fantastic. Again, kudos, Pam, to you and the entire sister circle for the work you're doing to support women. Um, you know, it sounds like across the nation now. So this this is actually a movement. You're building a coalition here. It's really taken our breath away. <laughs> it, it was right. It, it was literally the I have not brushed my teeth or combed my hair morning text. And it also shows what a tremendous need there is. Uh, you know, during the same time period, there are other women's groups in education that have come to life and are doing great work. You know, I want to say it's like the East Coast there. We have um, Pam Moran as a former superintendent. The She Leads EDU group, they are doing extraordinary work. Um, over here on the West Coast, we also have uh, Stacy Stanley, and I'm going to forget all the authors' names right off the top of my head, Judy Ariaga of the Leading Wild Female book. And they've had, you know, had a conference and are doing great things. And so we're seeing that this generation of woman who came from, you know, if you remember back, gosh, I, you know, as a kid in the 1970s, but, you know, thinking that you can go to work and, you know, bring home the bacon and have it all, right? There's that all the advertisement at the time. We found out that, that you can't. And now it's about investing in each generation of woman to stand up that balance in society of making sure that we put in the supports needed to be able to, if you want a family, have a family. If you don't, it's okay. If you want a career, have a career. If you don't want one, it's okay. But we need to be there for each other to, again, invest in the success of one another. And that's for men and for women. Yeah, fantastic. Very, very well said. Well, Pam, it has been fantastic having you on the show today. I'm so inspired by the work that you're doing uh, in so many different facets of, of your life. And I, I loved hearing about your experience as a child growing up being bicultural, biliterate. And we, we got to go back and talk about Jim Cummings and Bix and Kalp. That was wonderful. And of course, spent a little time with the uh, Edge of Revolution Voxer group and the folks mm -hmm. that were a part of that movement and still trying to continue that work today. And it'll be interesting to see as we, you know, come out of this global pandemic and return to schools how much of this innovation we can protect and what level of tension between compliance and innovation continues as we move forward because we have enjoyed some, some new freedom in some of the statutory requirements that are placed upon school systems in terms of attendance taking and summative assessment and so many other aspects. And it'll be interesting to see what of those kind of new innovations or, or innovations that have been around a while that have been done here and there? Uh, is it going to be another case of tinkering or are we actually going to move the system forward? And of course, I am extremely hopeful that we will indeed move the system forward. So Pam, uh, thanks again. It's been great spending time with you today. Enjoyed having you on the show. 
As always, Mike, I am part of the Mutual Fan Club with you and appreciate your leadership and the work and I'm grateful to you for taking the time with me and having me on your, your podcast, on your show. Wonderful. Well, thanks so much, Pam. Appreciate you being here. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thank you for listening today. I hope you feel inspired to be the change our students need. You can find this podcast on all the major platforms. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. You can connect with me on Twitter at Mike underscore McCormick2 and Instagram at Michael R. McCormick. And hop on over to the EduRevolutionPodcast.com website for free resources that support your next change initiative.